Good morning, church family. Greet you all in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is indeed a joy to be together on the first day, uh, on the first Sunday of the year, and to chart the year um, with worship to the Lord and hearing the, the Word of God. Um, it is always uh, important that when we start out the year, even though we know that we are not controlled by years and seasons, right? Um, that when we start out the year, we start it properly with our eyes set on the Lord. Let me take this time before we begin to uh, welcome our visitors. Uh, Faith has been introduced. Um, and uh, Mr. Yoni has also come with his uh, brother, uh, um, Mr. Bishop, uh, uh, and his uh, wife and, and, and children. Uh, please do feel welcome. I see a brother there at the back. Please do feel welcome. Um, I hope I'm not leaving anyone um, else. Um, please do feel welcome. Get to know them um, as well as the church. Uh, we thank God for bringing us together. As we look forward to the year, and then as I was thinking and meditating about what uh, we should look forward to, um, I thought I should take you to Daniel chapter 1. Um, Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to look at the whole of Daniel <coughs> chapter 1, the book of Daniel. Um, and the title of the sermon today is Resolved to Live Distinctively in the World. Resolved to Live Distinctively in the World. That word distinctively means to live differently, to live in such a way that um, your life is different. To resolve is to uh, make a firm decision, to make a firm decision. So we're going to look at this from uh, Daniel chapter 1, um, all of it. Let us take this time before we go into the word and uh, pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. As we sang, here I lay my Ebenezer, hither by thy help we have come. Indeed, it is you who walked with us. It is you who walks with us. And it is you who will continue to walk with us. And so we entrust our lives to you. We entrust our hearts to you. And we entrust um, our church into your hands. Bless your name, Lord, as we hear your word this morning. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen. Jonathan Edwards um, was a theologian um, right in the 1700s. He was a brilliant young man, but not only that, he was a godly young man. At the age of 19, he sat down to write his resolutions, 70 of them. He wrote these resolutions, but um, there were two resolutions that did not make it into the document that he wrote, the 70 resolutions. And these are the two resolutions that he made 
at some point in his life. The first one, resolution number one, I will live for God. Resolution number two, if no one else does, I still will. He commits his life with the cognizance that we live in a world that is uh, morally shifting, right? We 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 are in the shifting sense of a world that is uh, that keeps uh, moving and, and and transforming in terms of what the world stands for. But as as believers, as God's children, we must always be resolved to live for God, to to live for God when no one else will. To, to, to be resolved to live distinctively in the world. You see, although we live in the world, we are not of the world. We are citizens of the city of God, living in the city of man. We, we, we need to know how to live distinctively away from our heavenly home. We are, by the way, aliens in this world, right? We do not have permanent citizenship here. Our world is, our home is beyond this world. All throughout history, God's people have needed to learn this. And it's pretty clear this lesson is quite relevant in our day as well. Daniel deals with this, um, you know, with, with, with the book of Daniel deals with life in exile. At, at this point, we find the children of Israel, they have been exiled, they are in Babylon. But it comes from a different angle. It's full of stories and visions that stir up our imagination. We encounter pictures of God's people and see the curtains of this world pull back through the apocalyptic perspectives. These pictures inspire us to be faithful in exile. Many of the themes remain the same here. But the tone and templates change. We learn similar truths from uh, a different vantage point. I'm not going to give you an overview of Daniel this morning. Uh, I'm simply going to dive into the first chapter as we um, are looking at it. But the main themes here and the overall aim of the book emerge in this chapter. So as you read Daniel, you will, uh, it will give you a perspective to at least um, uh, you know how uh, Daniel is set up, the book of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 1 <clears throat> is divided into three parts. It's organized around a repeated phrase, which we'll, we'll talk about later. But for now, let, us, let, let me give, give you just the basic division of the book. In verse 1 to verse 7, it gives us the problem with living in the world. Verse 8 to verse 16 tells us how to live set-apart lives in this world. Verse 17 to verse 21 gives us a picture of our calling to engage the world. I hope that is clear. First of all, let us look at the first thing that appears in verse 1 to verse 7, confidence that God is in control. Confidence that God is in control. Let us begin by reading the first seven verses in Daniel chapter 1. This is what it says from the ESV. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave 
Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, the place, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, a good appearance and skillful, um, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place, in the, in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of, of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Right out of the gate, we see the problem this book addresses. There's a coalition of kingdoms here, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And in this collision, there's, there's pressure to conform to the pattern of the world. Look at verse 1 and 2. In, in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, and he, he, he brought Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, to Babylon. And he brought him along with other, uh, over 5,000 vessels of gold and silver from the temple. This is uh, in Ezra chapter 1, verse 11. And, and placed them in the temple of his God. God made promises to his people to establish an everlasting uh, kingdom. And during this time, Jerusalem was the seed of this kingdom. God made promises to establish an everlasting throne for David. Jehoiakim was sitting on the throne. But now, he's in Babylon. And God promised to dwell with his people in the temple. But now, the vessels are placed in the temple of Babylon's gods. God's promises were in question. That the throne and the temple were threatened. And eventually Jerusalem itself would fall in 587 BC. Two kingdoms collide. And from a human perspective, God's kingdom was being brought down by the kingdom of man. Why did this happen? Well, it is because the people of God had placed their trust in the kingdom of man. When, when God established his covenant with Israel, he warned them that if they wouldn't obey him, they'd be scattered among the nations. And later, Isaiah gave a specific prophecy to Hezekiah that they'd go into captivity in Babylon. Now, the, the, the context of Isaiah's prophecy is, is found in, in 2 Kings chapter 20. During the reign of Hezekiah, Israel was threatened by Assyria. And during that time, Babylon sent an envoy to Jerusalem. They, they offered protection from Assyria if they would pay tribute to Babylon. So Hezekiah took the delegation from Babylon um, into the temple to show them all the vessels that were in there. It, it, it was his way of saying that they had deep enough pockets to pay the price for an alliance. But if you think about it, as you read the story, you notice that this was a sin. 
They, they were looking to political means to save them from Assyria, something we struggle with even today as well. Even though God had already delivered them from Assyria once, they were not trusting God now. And so Isaiah told Hezekiah the vessels and the people will be carried off to Babylon. In other words, he's telling him that what you are putting trust in will be taken away from you. And we see the fulfillment of this prediction in Daniel chapter 1. You always serve the one you trust in. Israel trusted in Babylon. Now they'll serve Babylon. Babylon was not content with simply defeating Israel. They, they wanted to make the people of Israel like the people of Babylon. There, there was pressure to conform to the pattern of the world. Uh, not only are the king and the temple vessels taken away, the best and the brightest in Jerusalem are also taken away to Babylon. They, they experience a brain drain, a serious brain drain in Jerusalem where the brightest of the young people are taken into slavery. Verse 3 to verse 7 draws this out. It says, people of the royal family and of the nobility are brought to, to Babylon. In, in Jerusalem, they were probably trained to serve the king of Judah, to, to serve God's kingdom. But now Nebuchadnezzar wants to train them to serve his kingdom. And this will require reprogramming them. Right? They'll need to unlearn what they were taught in God's kingdom and learn how to lead in man's kingdom. How will this happen, you ask yourself? There are three things drawn out in our passage here. First of all, they'll be given new food, new education of the University of Babylon, and new names. I want to highlight their names here, because I think uh, they signify the whole reprogramming uh, regimen uh, that, was that they were trying to, to accomplish. First of all, the name Daniel, which we, we, for the rest of the book, we know him by, means God is my judge. The name Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. The name Mishael means who is God. The name Azariah means the Lord is my help. So for those who are expecting new babies, you know where to get new names. They are Hebrew uh, names focus on their God, right? On their God, I mean. But their new names focus on Babylonian gods. They are not just culturally relevant, but they have a religious connotation as well. They, they get to the heart of the reprogramming uh, that was happening to them. They are new identity markers. Daniel is given the name Belshazzar, which means the wife of Bel, this is a Babylonian god is my protection. Shadrach, uh, um, who uh, was uh, previously Hananiah, is given the name, uh, he's given the name Shadrach, which means Aku is in charge. Aku is another Babylonian god. Mishael is given the name Mishak, which means who is like Aku. And Abednego, uh, uh, um, um, Azariah is given the name Abednego, which means I will serve Nebo. The whole program is trying to get these young servants of Yahweh to forget Yahweh and his ways and to serve Babylon's gods. 
to look at for, to, to, to look to false gods for help instead of to the one true God. The, the names are intended to change their worldview and to change their identity. Their aim is complete assimilation to the city of man. Do you get the picture? It, it's the same picture in our day. Babylon is a placeholder in the Bible for the kingdom of this world that is at odds with the kingdom of God. From the Tower of uh, uh, Babel at Shinar in Genesis chapter 11 to the exile in, in Babylon. From Peter's letter that he wrote when he was in Rome, and what does he call Rome? He calls it Babylon. Uh, again, to, in Revelation, Babylon the Great. Babylon represents human pride and achievement. It represents the world that is against God. The, the, collisions of, uh, the collision of kingdoms. The, and Babylon applies pressure to conform us to the pattern of this world. Let me uh, uh, digress a bit. There was a great temptation in these young men to conform and uh, to, to think that God has left me and God has forsaken me. You will notice that when you read, they are under a charge of a man whose title is called the chief of what? Of eunuchs, right? These young men are still young. They are not... They, are, they do not anymore, they are placed under the chief of eunuchs, meaning that they are taken not only from Jerusalem as slaves, but they are made eunuchs. They cannot marry, they cannot have wives anymore. Daniel, all his life, we never see him getting married. We never hear of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting married. At that point, they could reject this God that has uh, apparently forsaken them. But what do they do as we continue? They do not conform to the world. They continue to set their roots in Yahweh. When kingdoms collide, when our world seems to be falling apart and everything seems lost, when there are forces all around trying to fit us into the world's mold, what should people of God do? What should we do in those moments? There are four little words tucked into these seven verses with big significance. These words give us the main theme of the whole chapter. They, they set the tone for the rest of the book. They are, the right, they, they are right at the beginning of verse 2. Listen to these words. In verse 2. Tony, in verse 2. I just want you to see them. And the Lord gave. And the Lord gave. We've seen that Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim and the vessels of the temple off. But we, what we haven't uh, said is that it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim and the vessels to him. And the Lord gave. The, the, the phrase is repeated two times in chapter 1. In verse 9 as well, we read, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Then in verse 17, God gave the four youths learning and skilled in all literature and wisdom. Daniel wants us to know in, in no uncertain terms that in the exile to Babylon, it wasn't lost to, on God. God had not lost the fight. He was in control of everything. 
He's superintending the whole thing. When kingdoms collide and when there is, no, there is pressure to conform to the pattern of the world, we need to remember that God is in control of the world. And that we should, that our confidence should be in him and our confidence should be to live for him whatever our situation is. There's always pressure to conform, isn't there, in this world? Satan is always active trying to undermine God's work and God's people. But God's people, in the midst of Satan's uh, attempts and, and threats, must look to God and trust in him and place their confidence in him because he's the one who is in control, not only of the big events of life, but also of the small events. He is in control. The idea that God is in control must be the lullaby of our raging souls, of our anxious souls. It must bring peace to us. It must be a song that reminds us that in the midst of Satan's buffets, it is well with my soul. The book of Daniel it's not mainly about us. It's mainly about God. He is in control. That's what Daniel want, wants us to see here. That's the fundamental truth here, or the foundational truth. But it's a truth that does, not, that does still apply to us, right? It's a foundation on which we are to build. We are called to live distinctively in the world. How do we do that? Daniel and his three friends provide a compelling portrait here. Their story, although different from ours, provides a pattern or a framework in which we can uh, make sense of our lives as exiles, as citizens of heaven living here on earth. God provided a way for them to live distinctively. We are told two more times in Daniel chapter 1 that God gave his people something. He provided them what they needed to live um, in exile. But not only do we see, um, not only do we see uh, this this idea that, of confidence that God is in control, but secondly, as we continue in this passage, we see from these young men commitment not to compromise. Commitment to not compromise. This is in verse 8 to verse 16. Let us look at it uh, quickly. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food and with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal 
with your servant according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of, at the, end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. This is the first thing that he provides them in chapter eight, verse, uh, in chapter one, verse eight to sixteen. There is a play on words in verse seven to eight that's lost. It's usually lost in the English translation, but I don't want you to miss it. In verse seven, the English uh, version says, "The chief of eunuchs gave them names," but it literally says he put names on them. In verse 8 it says Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. But it literally says Daniel put it on his heart that he would not defile himself. Babylon's trying to change him at the heart level by putting a new name on him. But Daniel put on his heart to res a resolve not to be changed not to compromise. And this is what we learn. When there's pressure to conform to the world, we should remain clean in the world. When Daniel resolves to define, not to define himself with the king's food and wine, there are at least three options here. One option is that the kind of food could define it. That the food may be a violation of the Jewish dietary laws. Or maybe the use of food could be found. Maybe it was offered to idols. Another option is that the source of the food would be found. Eating from the king's table would show that it was in fellowship with Gentiles. We, we don't know for sure what, what, what the reason was. But what seems clear enough here is Daniel was committing not to compromise his relationship with God. They can call him Belshazzar the only one. The wife of Bel is my protector, but Daniel knows God is his protector and is willing. He's not willing to forget. He he resolves to remain clean in the world. But it's not just Daniel's resolve that stands out here. It's also the way he seeks to fulfill his resolve. He, he didn't throw a tantrum. And, and, and make a scene. He went quietly and graciously to the chief of eunuchs and asked for a diet of vegetables and water. The chief eunuch hesitated because Nebuchadnezzar wanted these guys to be in tip-top shape, right? And if they are looking all thin because of their diet, Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, could lose his head. But Daniel trusted his God and put a reasonable plan forward to the steward in verses 12 to 13, test your servants for 10 days, then let our appearance be observed by you. And the results were astonishing. And uh, people, unfortunately, take this passage and say, Daniel, uh, the Daniel, uh, the Daniel passage. Uh, this is not about the Daniel passage. It has nothing to do with it. And there's no such thing in the Bible. But anyways, I digress. In verse 15, we see that Daniel and his friends were better in appearance and better in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. God provided for Daniel and his friends when they were committed to stay clean. He gave them favor with the officials and gave them health. 
there's not a promise here that God will always make the road easy when we resolve to live distinctively. It doesn't mean things will be smooth for you in the world. Things were not smooth for these young men, as we have noticed. These young men were now eunuchs. But God, in the midst of the troubles of life, will provide what we need. There are many temptations to compromise our relationship with the Lord in this world. It's hard to convince you to clean. Uh, what are the things that tend us to compromise? Maybe you feel that being set apart for Jesus will compromise your career advancement. Or maybe your social advancement. Not done yet. His identity as, as, as a citizen of God's kingdom was most important. And he had confidence in his God. He was even willing to put God to the test, and he did that in a gracious way. What about you? What about you? Do you believe that God will provide what you need to remain clean in this world? To not compromise your faith. To, to stay in the path. To, to set your eyes on him when the world tries to compete with our faith. Not only there, but thirdly and lastly, in verse 17 to 21, we see competence to stay connected. Competence to stay connected. Look at verse 17 to verse 21. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding of visions and dreams. And at the end of the, of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among one of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were, all, that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there, until the first year of King Cyrus. Remember the key words in this passage. God gave. God gave his people to Babylon. It was no accident. God was in control. And God gave them favor and compassion with those in leadership. Now God gave them competence to serve the wickedness. You see that? He gives them competence. He makes them young geniuses in the administration of Nebuchadnezzar. He gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And he specifically gave Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams, which play a huge role in the book. Babylon had a thorough training program for those who would serve in the court of the king. And I, I don't doubt that God used that program to equip Daniel and his friends for their work. But Daniel and his friends were, were, were head and shoulders above all their classmates. They graduated top honors. In verse 20, they, it tells us that they were 10 times better than anyone else. Literally, it reads 10 hands better. In other words, with their two hands, they could do the, the work of five men. And this was all because of God's work in them. And what's the purpose of all of this? It's so that they can serve the king of Babylon. What does this teach us? It teaches that even though we should remain 
cleaning the world, we also remain connected to the world. Daniel 1 is calling us to be set apart from the world, but it's not calling us to retreat from the world. We can be faithful and fruitful in the world. God provides what we need to be useful in the world. And this is so important to understand. And I want to come back to, to it in just a minute. But first, I want you to notice something amazing at the end of, of, of this passage that I believe brings our perspective to our call to stay connected to the world. Look at verse 21. This is what it says. And I, I think it's very important when, when you read Daniel, uh, by the way, when you read Daniel and you miss verse 21 of chapter 1, you actually miss the whole point of, of, of understanding uh, Daniel uh, and the different administration, uh, administrations that were there. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What, what's the point of this verse? Well, remember where this chapter began, right? This chapter opens up with Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Everything was killed off uh, from Jerusalem to, to Babylon. But what happens in the first year of King Cyrus? Ezra chapter 1 tells us that in the first year of King Cyrus, some of the exiles from Babylon returned to Jerusalem. So the exile will eventually be over, right? Cyrus was the king of Persia. His reign marks the end of the Babylonian kingdom and the beginning of the Medo-Persian kingdom. So Babylon will eventually fall. It is not a kingdom that will last forever. Verse 1 is teaching us that although the kingdom of man may seem to prevail, the kingdom of God will always prevail. God is sovereign. He is in control. And he is with his people to the end. And his people can, can take the truth, that truth to the bank. Right? That's the message of Daniel. But in the meantime, we, we don't shrink back from the world. No. We engage the world. Daniel never returned to Jerusalem. He, he never did. When, 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 when the exiles went back to Jerusalem, Daniel remained. He spent his life in Babylon, living distinctively in light of the fact that God is sovereign. He remained clean, but he also remained connected. We, we, we are called to do the same. God placed his people in Babylon, not just to punish them, he wanted them to be a witness to his enduring kingdom. And God provided for Daniel and his friends so that they could be witnesses. He placed them at the center of Babylon. His life in exile, he lost something to survive brothers and sisters. It's an opportunity to thrive, serving the city of man, even while we remain citizens of the city of God. God is in control of all of history. Everyone things seem to be spinning out of control. And this wasn't just true in Daniel's time. We see the same thing in our time. God remains the very center of history. Think of the cross. From one perspective, Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. From God's perspective, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of our God. God has not lost control. He was not running around like a headless chicken. He was not trying to come up with plan B. 
he already was in control. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God is in control. And God provides. For those who place their trust in Christ as king, those, brought, uh, those bought by the blood of Christ, are now citizens of an everlasting kingdom. And because of our confidence in this enduring, in this enduring kingdom, we can live faithfully in this world. We can keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. First Peter says in chapter 2, verse 12, we can bear witness to the world. We can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. When kingdoms collide, we need to remember that God is in control. When there is pressure to conform to the pattern of the world, we need to remain clean in the world. But we also need to remain connected to the world. As we look forward to 2022, remember it is still the same. I don't have a prophecy about it's going to be a year of this and this. It is going to be the year where God is sovereign. It is going to be the year where the will of God will take place as it always has done. And it, is, it must be the year where our trust is firmly fixed in Him no matter what happens. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, we, we want to commit ourselves to you. That when, 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 when things seem to be going out of control in our lives, where we feel like we are without strength, may we remember that you are a sovereign God in control whose will will always prevail. May you be glorified in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ.